Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson. Today, September 16, means episode number 97. Well, just ahead, Goldman Sachs gets in on the buy now, pay later business with a $2.8 billion acquisition. And a failed drug test that might not be a failure at all. And an interesting public company that makes plastic out of wood chips. My guests, Origin Materials co-CEOs, John Bissell and Rich Riley. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever. With ERA, customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A.com. And you can listen to the Drill Down podcast every day on all kinds of platforms, including now Player FM. So go to Player FM, listen to the show, and indeed you click the subscribe button to make sure you follow us and catch every show. And the Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech, team, tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We're going to explain the business stories behind a few stocks on the move. But first, let's get to the three most important business developments of the day with executive producer Isaac Webster. Isaac? Corey, let's start with retail sales. U.S. retail sales rebounded in August despite the Delta variant. Report shows that a resilience of economic recovery and suggests households are boosting spending. Sales at the nation's retailers rose 0.7% in August, the Commerce Department said. That's despite a big decline in car sales related to product shortages and shipping problems. Excluding cars, sales ro rose at 1.8%. That's a big number. Um, and it shows you, you know, just how people came out of the stimulus with really improved balance sheets with lower credit card debt, higher savings rates. And um, some people did just fine financially throughout the pandemic. Now, let's get to uh, the banks, uh, the, I, I should say central bank, the Fed. Sen Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts is calling on Fed banks to prevent its leaders from stock trading. Senator Warren sent letter letters to the 12 regional Fed presidents asking them to ban ownership of individual stocks among their top officials at their banks. Warren has asked for a response by October 15th. Now, why this request now? Well, last week, the Wall Street Journal reported that Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan and Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren actively traded stocks and other investments over the course of 2020. So, so I looked at the trading reports from uh, uh, Dallas Fed President Kaplan. This guy was trading shares of Tesla. Well, for, you know, I mean, I, I just it, it is a highly, highly speculative stock. You might love Tesla, you might not. There's no one out there that's going to say it's a it's a you know, a safe value investment or something that's reflecting the broader economy. I mean, the rest of his stuff looked pretty plain Jane, but I was just, my jaw was on the floor when I saw that last week. It's just uh, mind boggling that this stock trading has been going on, in my opinion. It's, um, it seems like a no brainer, you know, when you're in the position of being a Fed, Fed bank president, you should not be able to trade stocks like this. It well, and maybe more, logical. I'm, I'm more concerned with the individual equity trading of our congressional leaders as well. Um, That's also a problem. It's uh, They should be in the market. Great. Come on in. The water's warm. But individual picking of stocks starts to look towards, uh, you know, starts to look messy. There's plenty best. of ways to invest without 
investing individually like that. So, you know, do your homework, elected officials and Fed presidents. All right, let's move on. Uh, China has formally applied to join the 11 nation Asia Pacific Trade Pact. Beijing is seeking to draw traditional American allies into its economic orbit. Now, you may remember that the, this Asia-Pacific trade pact was championed by President Obama to counter China. And Beijing's application to join comes a day after the Biden administration unveiled a new secret, I mean, a new security partnership with the UK and Australia in the Pacific region. Now, Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Let's look at Laureate Education. It's not what it used to be. Uh, I've never even heard of it. So L-A-U-R is how it trades. Shares rose today, and they've risen 34% in a year. So tell me about Laureate Education. So this was the business that owned uh, uh, the company that owned the Walden Education business. That it was a for-profit uh, education company in the U.S. Okay. Got into trouble uh, with federal authorities. Uh -huh. um, they divested themselves of that. They sold Walden University. Um and uh, their business is very different now. They run two universities in Mexico, two universities and a vocational school in Peru. They're out of the for-profit U.S. education business. They're in very different markets where the role of higher education is very different. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they're doing quite well at that. They're generating a ton of cash. And indeed, the sale of Walden University also generated a lot of cash. They announced today they're going to distribute a big chunk of that by giving a special dividend of $7 per share uh, on October 29 to their shareholders, a total distribution of about $1.3 billion. Um, and this is a stock that's trading at 17 bucks. So $7 share distribution, it's a pretty big bit dividend from these guys. So I thought it was just interesting to go back and take a look at them. Um, and what's interesting about their business is with the Walden uh, business out of there, out from underneath their corporate umbrella, and with you know potential problems with US regulators, also no longer their problem, they're showing some real growth, uh, even throughout COVID um, in Mexico and Peru. And I don't know how much this is appreciated of the stock price. I sort of don't care. But what was interesting to me is that they lowered what they were charging students. They discounted students in Mexico in particular during the pandemic, which suggests that when they stop that discounting, there's even more revenues to come and perhaps even more dividends to come. Here's CEO uh, Elif Sarek Hansen talking about that Mexican discounting and what was going on in Peru and how average pricing was down in the last year, maybe not next year. The, uh, the discounting uh, in Mexico uh, was uh, what we did in order to help our students during uh, a very difficult time during the pandemic. Uh, and um, those discount levels were slightly uh, higher in, in Mexico than in Peru, but they are uh, relatively short term in nature. Uh, also, uh, what is um, what we experienced in Mexico, uh, which we experienced to a much lesser degree in Peru, was that students uh, would you know flip over to uh, online delivery during the pandemic. So there was a you know past the migration to fully online, and those two effects uh, combined uh, were driving a uh, what we viewed to be a temporary reduction in the average um, pricing in Mexico. So if it's temporary, by definition, it's going to end, and that might provide a bigger boost to this business of providing education in Mexico and Peru. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at Aerie. 
Airy trades under AERI. Shares tumbled over 20% today, and they've lost 9% since the beginning of the year. What's going on with Airy Pharmaceuticals? Not to be confused with our sponsors, Era. Airy um, is a pretty interesting pharma company that has, has been working on a, a treatment for dry eye. Dry eye is an increasing medical problem as people spend more time on their phones, more time staring at their computers. Uh, I, full disclosure, I have gone through dry eye bouts many times. It is very painful. Sorry to hear that. Um, well, and in some cases, so was this treatment, uh, but not enough cases to be statistically significant. Let's talk about how drugs get approved by the FDA. So companies submit things for trials. They typically go through a phase one, phase two, slightly bigger phase two, and then a very big phase three trial to make sure drugs are efficacious and safe. So, and usually the earlier trials prove the safety and hint at efficacy. And then the later phase three trial tries to prove both uh, in, in scale. But sometimes a company with certain drugs get FDA approval to do a phase 2B study, which is bigger than a typical phase two study and not as big as a phase three study. Of course, these studies are very expensive to conduct. And if, if, if approved by the FDA for certain kinds of um, uh, medical problems, a phase 2B study is sufficient enough to get to the market. But you've got to declare very clearly what your uh, statistically significant endpoint will be, which involves both the effectiveness or the efficacious uh, treatment itself and also how long it's going to take. Well, these guys at Airy picked a, st a statistical date, I think it was 28 days, 24 days, um, that this drug would work. And then they did the study and they didn't hit it. So the stock tanked. And as you mentioned, it's down over 20% today. But... If you read through the results, what happened is the drug did work. It just didn't work significantly enough over 20-some days. But after 40 days or so, it worked great. So now they know what they need to do a phase three study. They tried to get a shortcut around the phase three study, basically. And they didn't pass the phase 2B endpoint that they selected because they just selected the wrong one. Now, they could have just done a phase two study and looked at these results and say, cool, now I know how to do the phase three study. But they tried to pick an end, an end spot. They got the wrong one. Their primary endpoint wasn't what they thought it would be. And yet they say that the results were statistically significant in the efficaciousness of treating dry eye, just not in 20-some days. Now they got to do a phase three trial. But they say, no, this is not a big failed trial. Here is the CEO, Vicente and Dio. Think about it this way. Had, I, had we not selected those uh, those uh, primary endpoints that we selected, and we had hit them, we would simply have had a successful phase 2B trial. We'd still have two more phase 3 trials to go. We had to predefine them. So we had to pre-specify the primary endpoints if we thought we would have any chance at all of using this particular trial as a phase 3. Typically, you don't call out uh, pre-specified primary endpoints in a phase 2B trial. It's purely exploratory. When we talk to folks like uh, Dr. Chambers at the FDA, you know, their belief is that phase 2B trials are, are basically for the company to explore all the possible avenues that characterize the drugs, and that's what we did. And then phase 3s are the ones that we use for regulatory reasons. And so we didn't lose anything, although obviously from maybe you know, the perception that we that this is a failed trial, but I doubt that you will find another phase two B trial in dry eye that hit this many symptoms and signs endpoints 
in a statistically significant way without having to do data mining. Interesting call here that this is actually a success. It's just going to take them longer to get to the market. They sort of tried to shortcut the process. Shortcut didn't work, but they're still, according to the company, uh, en route to a phase three trial. Yeah, I have to say, I liked how, he's, I liked how he uh, positioned his argument. Swinging for the fences didn't work. Yeah, and they're like, hey, but this is in the long run. This is a win for us. I like that argument. Corey, what's the next drill down? So let's look at Green Sky. Green Sky. I've been in the news today. Trades under GSKY. Shares fell today, but it does have GS in its ticker already. Indeed, GS Goldman Sachs mm-hmm. uh, took this company public a while ago at $24 a share. Well, now Goldman Sachs is buying the business, the entire business, at about $12 a share. I said at the top of the show it was $2.8 billion. It's, it's a share, it's an all-stock acquisition by Goldman Sachs of Green Sky. It's about, I don't know, $2.5 billion, depends on how, what the price of Goldman shares are, of course. In any case, they're getting into this consumer finance business of Green Sky. Green Sky, in particular, is a buy-now-pay-later platform, typically used or typically thought of, at least, as home improvement. What's interesting to me is it's not just home improvement. They do a lot of solar business. They do a lot around elective surgery. Indeed, if you look at their results, they've really been growing into lots of other categories, not just the um, uh, home renovation stuff that they got to be known for, not least of which because during COVID, that's what everyone was doing was all these big home renovations. But now with other things like solar and like elective healthcare, that's ramping up. Goldman's buying a business that, that Green Sky says is really growing and with Goldman's balance sheet, they can grow it a lot faster. Here's the Green Sky CEO, David Zalek, in the company's last earnings call, talking about elective healthcare. And elective healthcare continues to ramp up, and we're very excited about that. Um, and, and we expect that to, to continue to ramp and uh, start becoming a meaningful part of our business. Um, so... We've we've got we've got a, I think a lot of opportunities in front of us not only in our home improvement core business but now healthcare is ramping and now solar. So interesting business, uh, growing and growing in lots of areas that uh, you might not think of when you think about um, buy now pay later like healthcare. All right, coming up we're looking at a really interesting company, Origin Materials, that is making plastics but not using oil as a base. It's using wood chips and organic materials. The co-CEOs, John Bissell and Rich Riley, Silicon Valley veteran Rich Riley, join us right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. And The Drill Down is brought to you by Indeed. When you pay for a job site, you should know what you're getting. Get Indeed. Pay only for quality candidates who meet your must-have requirements. Don't just hope for the perfect candidate. Indeed's hiring tools will help you cut through the noise and hire faster and smarter. With Indeed assessments, choose from 135 skill tests to make sure you're finding applications from people with the skills you need. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all the other job sites combined, and one and a half times more hires than even internal referrals. So join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Get started right now. Drill Down listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade job posts at Indeed.com slash Drill Down. 
That's right. Go to Indeed.com slash down for that $75 credit. Indeed.com slash down. Offer valid through September 30. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. We are joined right now by the Origin Materials co-CEOs, Rich Riley, that's him on the left, John Bissell on the right. Of course, you can't tell the difference because this is a stereo broadcast, but Rich and John, glad to have you guys. Um, uh, John, why don't I start with you? Uh, what uh, is Origin Materials? How do you guys make money? How do you make products? Yeah, so we're a, a chemical and materials technology company. And what we've done is developed a technology platform that enables us to take lignocellulosic materials like, like wood chips or sawdust or you know residual agricultural stuff and convert that through into two intermediates, CMF and HTC, that we can then use to make all sorts of different materials. The special part about this is one, we can make stuff that nobody else can make that way. Um, so you know, functionally advantaged materials that do stuff that you can't really get from the petrochemical industry. But perhaps even more important than that is that when we make those materials and chemicals, they're carbon negative. So the net life cycle impact is that there are fewer greenhouse gases in the atmosphere when we're done than there were when we started. And John, what would the, uh, give me an example of the kind of products we're talking about here. So the one that we talk about the most is PET. So PET goes into a couple of different applications that are familiar to consumers. One is, you know, PET soda bottles and water bottles. Um, and that's the, the sort of top of mind usually for a consumer. But um, it's actually a smaller part of the market. So the, the larger part is fibers and textiles and, uh, and apparel, things like that. So, you know, like a, a, an athletic jersey from Nike or Adidas or something along those lines is, is often, a I might even say typically, a polyester um, jersey. And that's actually the exact same material. So the polyester is the same as the soda bottle. Um, and when you use our technology to make that PET, it's exactly the same stuff, same PET, but it has a way lower carbon footprint. Is it as functionally or is it meant to be as functionally the same? It is. It is exactly the same. In fact, if you gave it to a lab to go analyze it, you'd have to uh, you'd have to get beyond the electrons into the nucleus to understand that it came from a different source. It is exactly the same. How is that possible? Yeah, so that's the magic of sort of chemistry, I suppose, is that is that as long as you arrange the atoms in the right configuration, then you get the same thing on the other side. Um, and so... Uh, without getting into all of the, the nitty gritty on it. Essentially, the chemical transformations that we do enable us to make the same stuff um, that you make from petroleum, but we make it starting with uh, with wood feedstocks instead. And the trick with that kind of thing is, you know, we joke sometimes in the industry that you can make anything out of anything. The question is, can you make it economically? And right. so in our case, uh, you know, it's not surprising to um, most people in the industry that you might be able to make PET out of wood, the surprising thing is that you can do it so economically. And that's sort of our trick. Well, I would seem like you'd need like a, I don't know, a fancy guy from Wharton or something to help you figure. Oh, there's, there's Rich Riley, the, uh, <laughs> the other co-CEO. It's a fancy guy from Wharton and from Silicon Valley, uh, which we met maybe years ago at Yahoo, maybe when you were the CEO of Shazam. It doesn't seem to me when I look at your resume of going, you know, maybe KKR, but, you know, uh, Yahoo, uh, uh, Shazam, doesn't lead itself to chemical engineering. Um, explain to me what you're doing at this company and, and, and what you're trying to achieve here. Yeah, well, it's it's very important that I not do anything related to chemical engineering. So that's <laughs> uh, that's a, that's a clear difference. But I um, I first met John over 10 years ago and was actually one of the earliest investors in Origin. So I've been very close to the company during my Yahoo days, during my Shazam days. And, and for many of those years, 
John, who who I think of as the Elon Musk of, of chemistry and the team, were, were really perfecting the science as he just described. And last year, it became clear that the customer demand for this product was so huge and the technology was so ready to be scaled that there was a role for me to play partnering with John to help him scale the company, raise the capital, and to enable him to focus on things that he's best in world at, which is advancing this you know, world-changing technology. And part of that was taking the company public this year and taking it public through a SPAC. Yes. So we um, merged with a SPAC. We announced it in February. We closed it in June. And uh, as part of that process, put almost $500 million on our balance sheet, which was is that critical funding we need to go build these plants so that we can make these materials and uh, satisfy the enormous demand that we're seeing from customers. Uh, and some of the investors, I don't, want, I don't want to get to the manufacturing stuff, and I don't like to focus too much on stocks or investors, but you have some strategics in here that are that look like they could be really important um, and at the very least lend credence to the idea that this might work. Yeah, so we've been fortunate that Pepsi, Nestle, and Danone in particular have been longtime investors in the company. They invested over $40 million in the company several years ago. And we're not just investors, but we're very active. They were on the board. They tested our materials. They they were the, really the first ones to take our materials all the way through to things like water bottles and do all the chemical testing and physical testing to, to really prove out that this amazing technology that, that John and the team created um, can actually be converted into actual end products for, for consumers and meet the actually incredibly high um, specs that those products have. And so they've been uh, re- really instrumental in the company's development. Yeah, those specs can be really tricky. I remember um, many years ago, I was short this stock when I was a, a fund manager, and the company had a secret, a cup, a deal with a, I don't know if I should name the company. They they had a deal with a, a cereal maker. They wouldn't say who it was. They couldn't buy um, by rule. And yet the day they came out with this an- announcement, all of the analysts who covered the company announced that they had a deal with Kellogg's. It turns out they sent the, the company sent out a press release as a Microsoft Word file called Kellogg.doc. We're not saying who it is. We've got this deal. So forever there was a speculation with, well, I finally got someone at Kellogg's to tell me, um, this is many years ago, but tell, to tell me, look, yeah, we're testing the thing out. We put it in the cereal and then we put it in a box and we let the box sit there for three years and we see if it stinks. Literally, literally the concern was that it would smell like fish and it did after a few years. Um, is the testing like that for this where they'll put, they'll take one of your magical wood chipped plastic bottles and sit it on a shelf for three years and see if it works or is, or is it uh, more scientific than that? No. Yeah. That's exactly the kind of testing that they do is um, it, it's, it's, uh, you know, they're, they're looking for different things depending on exactly what the product is. Right. So with, with a Kellogg cereal, I'd imagine they're looking for oxidation of the fats, right. Rancidity, uh, which is going to be like um, oxygen permeating the the barrier of the material, sort of diffusing right. through the, the membrane and then subsequently reacting. Actually, in this case, it was an omega-3 fatty acid derived yeah. from algae that when it broke down did in fact smell like rotting fish. Oh, I see. So issue. in that case, it wasn't there. They didn't have packaging material. They were no, worried about the stability right. of the fat itself. Yeah, I get right. that makes sense. Um, yeah, and the unsaturation is what's going to be vulnerable in particular with the rancidity of the oxygen. But the, um, so with, uh, uh, with our stuff, it's the same idea is you want to see exactly what happens over time because, you know, we think of the, the world as sort of inert, right? Um, as human beings walking around, you, you feel like the concrete's un, unchanging, the air that you're breathing is unchanging, all those sorts of things. But the reality is that actually a lot of that stuff is proceeding over 
longer than sort of normal human perception timescales. And so that's a lot of times what they're looking for when they do these sorts of long time term testing. You know, do you, do you see colors start to form, for example, in the packaging material? So with the water bottles, what you care about is, is there something in there that is gonna make it smell or taste different, right, than it would with normal PET? Um, and actually what's oddly odd is about, uh, with, some, with some packaging materials, the, the, the flavor or the smell imparted by the packaging is actually an important part of the sort of characteristic flavor of the product that you're eating out of the packaging. So that, you know, it, it, it isn't as though packaging doesn't impact the product. It always right. does. The question is, does it do it the same way that the other stuff did? Um, but so, yeah, so they're looking for that kind of stuff. Um, they're looking for, um, uh, you know, did it degrade over time mechanically, right? Did it get weaker? So since we're dealing with packaging, uh, the mechanical elements of it matter a lot, but that's exactly the kind of testing that they did. You know, blow bottles, put product in the bottles, put the bottles on, you know, rack them on pallets, stack the pallets, put them in a room, let it, let it weather essentially and see if there are any changes over time. So how do you decide what markets to go after, Rich, when you, when you, you know, if you're making plastic, you can do just about anything. You're making vacuum cleaners, you could be making soda bottles. What, what are you trying to figure the right market is? Or do you look for the places where there are incentives? You talked about this a little bit in your SEC filings about incentives to get away from carbon by, by companies that pollute a lot. Yeah, so we um, we focused mostly on on our PET products, so carbon negative PET, which is this massive multi hundred billion dollar market that, as John described, goes in everything from from bottles to to clothing to carpet to cars, um, toys, all kinds of stuff. And you know, we have um, a lot of customers find us. We also find customers. We're really helping them meet their net zero pledges and their sustainability pledges. And so for us. You know, the ideal customer is someone who who consumes a, a large quantities of PET, has aggressive um, goals uh, with respect to to ESG, and um, and then we we meet with them and and they are um, very excited to find that there's a drop in material and that's really important in this space. So what they do don't have drop to, in? they don't have to change anything. They don't have to change the product, the packaging, the machine tooling. A lot of biomaterials companies show up with a whole new thing, and it's like here's my thing, and for the company it could be exciting but it's it's a big project and really the manufacturing expensive. process has to be different you got to change everything right so ours drops straight in it's exactly the same as john said it's chemically identical and it's priced economically with what they're used to buying um which is another thing they're not used to because frequently biomaterials aren't made at scale they cost two to three times their sort of uh, you know fossil based um alternatives and so when we show up with a drop-in ready material um, that's economically priced. Uh, we have customers, uh, we've, we've talked about Pepsi, Nestle, and Danone. We also have a lot of apparel customers. We have a lot of automotive customers, and we even have a lot of like building materials customers. And we're talking to people in retail and toys and cosmetics and, and, and all kinds of stuff. And, and for us, while that sounds like a very wide range of end uses, yeah, it's all the same PET. Now you say, um, I've, here's where tough questions, Corey. You say you have customers. I say you don't have revenue. So how can you have customers? Orders. orders. They're orders. So if we, when you place an order with us, we, we, we consider you a customer and treat you, treat you as such. And so well, it's nice to treat people nicely, but you know, yeah, you know, for, we have um, for financial debt. You're the Wharton guy. <laughs> yeah, no, they're, they're customers. So they just haven't been invoiced yet. Um, but we have, I know, three and a half billion dollars of demand 
as we call it. And so these are actually signed signed documents ranging from letters of intent stating, I want this many tons of material at this price over this many years to full take or pay, you know, contracts that are, you know, meant to, to support project financing. And if you were to talk to these customers, they would all tell you that they really want these materials, that there's not an alternative out there, and that they fully intend to to purchase these materials as, as we produce them in the future years. Now, John, let me ask you about the production of them. You you guys warn in your um, SEC filings when you went for public that you haven't produced them at scale yet. Um, what are the challenges at getting to scale um, that there are still question marks for you? Yeah, so I, I, the thing that we're most focused on is really, um, we think of as just straight execution. So, you know, there, there's a technology component to what we're doing, but we spent the last 10 years being really good at that and retiring a lot of that risk. At this point, what we're really focused on is um, is executing the capital projects. And then, of course, standing up the manufacturing organization is do that as well. So if you, if you look at these capital projects, you know, there are lots of companies in the world that are are good at it and execute these routinely, but they're they're big companies, right? This is like the the big the classical big chemical companies are are excellent at these kinds of capital projects, and um, we're a small company and a new entrant in this space, and that means that we need to bring a lot of capability online relatively quickly, um, and that's where we're really focused is making sure we can actually do that. You know, is, capital projects are, are complicated. What are the, yeah <laughs> exactly? What does the facility look like? Uh, so it looks like uh, it looks like a chemical plant. Um, I, I don't know if that says if that speaks to everybody, but it very much speaks to me. It's um, <laughs> if you're, you know, I, the way I usually describe it is if somebody's driving to the Bay Area from uh, Tahoe, there's a big refinery on the side of the freeway that you see in Rodeo on the on the way down. Uh, it looks like that. It looks like a refinery. Um, so the difference is fermenters. The, there's there's I mean, you wouldn't have crackers or things like those big round things that you see. And uh, uh, or do you? You have columns, so we don't have any fermentation, so there's no bugs okay. in our system. We we take in wood, but then we're it's all like a chemical sledgehammer all the way through, and um, and so we do have big distillation columns. Um, in our particular case for Origin One, the first plant that we're building, it's a little smaller. It actually looks um, uh, it, there. It's in modules, and what what modules are basically giant steel cages um, that you sort of suspend the equipment from in the interior. And that lets you move, you can assemble the equipment somewhere else and then move the module and mm-hmm. um, and stick it up later. And so in that particular case, it sort of looks like giant Legos with the chemical plant components inside the Lego um, that you hook together. But it, but this is, uh, you know, there's obviously the difference in feedstock. So we're, we've got, you know, wood on the, uh, a wood yard, which is basically big piles of wood chips, right? That get conveyed around on conveyor belts. Um, on the front end, so that you wouldn't find that at a refinery. But aside from that, it, it unless you're in the business, uh, it, it looks just like a refinery. And is that why you're based in West Sacramento? I mean, I know you went to UC Davis, so says your bio, but no. Generally speaking, if you were um, if you're looking for the optimal place to put a chemical company, um, it's one not would California. Not look, yeah, one would not look for California. Um, now that said, the environmental rules. Yeah, yeah. we'd rather be, go back to Gary, Indiana, right, go to well, Louisiana, where the, the laws are different. Yeah. The um, uh, I, I won't um, uh, I won't ask you to. I just did. I, I won't besmirch <laughs> any of the uh, environmental regulations in any of the, the, the states in the U.S. But the um, yeah, so California is not a natural place to go for that, except that you get um, it's a great place for talent. So. You can get really, really high quality talent in California, even even so obviously there's there's really high quality talent in California already, but it's actually 
Um, it's easier to recruit to California on balance than you'd think. A lot of people have been living in, you know, some godforsaken manufacturing location um, and would love to go live in a place like California. And Rich so see him, he, he's, he's dancing around besmirking the reputations of some places where chemical engineers right, exactly. have to live where they are, <laughs> do have lax. Uh, we we all know which ones I'm talking about. <laughs> um, so yeah, we chemical engineers know. Um, but the, uh, yeah, so it, it actually, it's a good place from a talent perspective. Um, you know, obviously we're, we're, we also have offices in other places in the U S because, um, sometimes people, you know, they don't want to relocate to California and we still want them as talent. So we want to have access to them. But, um, but yeah, no, it was much more serendipity that put us in, in, um, uh, West Sacramento more so than because we analytically decided on the optimal place to start a chemical company. You know, we were out of UC Davis, we were spending, um, the earliest sections of the technology out of UC Davis. And so it made sense to be geographically proximate. And, uh, you know, it turns out once you start up a chemical lab, it's sort of inordinately expensive to relocate it. Um, and so you, you end up with a, a strong founder effect. <laughs> and, and Rich, let me ask you finally, when do you expect to actually get product into the market and, and show some uh, a top line uh, at all? Yeah, so our first plant comes online at the end of next year. And so we'll be shipping products in, in 2023. Exciting, really interesting stuff, interesting company, and one we'll keep an eye on. Glad to have you both, John Bissell and Rich Riley, uh, CEOs, co-CEOs of Origin Materials. Well, coming up next, the drill on bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. We're going to talk about how much money this company spent just to get where it is so far uh, and, and how big of an investment this has been just to get to this point when the drill down continues. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. With ERA, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And The Drill Down is now available on Player FM. You can hear all of the Drill Down episodes. I encourage you to go back, check out some of the older episodes where we've talked about some interesting companies, some interesting interviews with other CEOs over time. It's all on Player FM. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. And we're back with the Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. Here is the number, the accumulated deficit for origin materials. It's a big number, $98,888,000 uh, as of the end of last year. But that number's actually come down. $89,928 the end of the most recent quarter. But Isaac, obviously, they put a lot of money into this thing, and they've got a long way to go before they get any product out the door. Yeah, it's an ambitious plan, but I think it's, it seems like something the market wants. Indeed. All right, thank you for joining The Drill Down. We do appreciate your time. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. Ben Wilson is our editor extraordinaire. Drill Down's a production of the Business Podcast Network.